Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. I'm Vivian Dutro, an editor at Ignatius Press, and our guest today is Sherry Bloomquist, author of Before Austin Comes Aesop. And Sherry, why don't you tell us briefly what Before Austin Comes Aesop is about? Oh, well, thank, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Um, well, it is, uh, first of all, a two-part book. And the first part is an annotated list of what uh, I call the children's great books, which is kind of a, a parallel, I guess, uh, if you will, of the Western canon known as the great books. It's my, um, my, my offering of the children's version of that. And the second half of the book is um, discusses ways to help children fully enjoy and appreciate uh, these, these wonderful books. Um, or any books really, <laughs> um, through different um, methods like um, just leisure reading or a scholarly uh, study of them. So. And give us a little bit about your background. Uh, what made you a book lover? Well, I grew up an only child, uh, at least till I was 13, and then I have a half-sister. But um, until I was 13, it was just my mother and I. And so I had a lot of quiet in my house, and, and she was a book lover herself. She loved children's books, still does. She's 80 years old, and she still reads children's literature, <laughs> just loves it. Um, and she just fed me book after book because I had limited access. I didn't have a good school library or anything. And so I just read whatever she gave me, and she uh, introduced me to some of the best children's literature literature. And over the years, I just became an avid reader. I developed a love for writing st my stories of my own. And um, middle school, I think, was a time when I really started to own my love for books. And that was in Rift Days, which were uh, called Reading is Fundamental. And we would go uh, to go to a room and be books laid out on a table. And every every student could choose one book off the table. And to me, it was like, you know, a candy store. And um, I began to own my own choices. And um, and then I became a bookseller when I became an adult. Um, and uh, I got to learn all kinds of new literature that I hadn't been exposed to before and, um, and help other children feed their love of books and help parents find books for their children. And so um, I just, uh, that deepened my love for literature even more, and especially children's literature. And then you studied English in college, right? And education as well. Yes, I was going to be an elementary education major, and my professors finally said to me, what are you doing? You should be an English, English teacher. So I thought, well, maybe they're right. So I went that direction, and, um, and I also have a major uh, or a degree in Bible as well. So. And the, the premise of your book is that uh, children uh, often dive into adult literature a little too prematurely, before really enjoying and appreciating literature written just for them or literature that while maybe not written just for them, historically uh, has been passed down to children. Why do you think that's important? Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, literature that... Um, that why children should read children's literature before diving into adult right. literature too soon. I'm sorry. Um, yes, um, I uh, became very concerned about the number of uh, literature programs that were uh, 
introducing some of the major adult classics onto to young teens and in early high school before they were really grown out of some of the major children's classics. And I became very concerned because many of these programs had a lot of books that they would teach children in these programs. And I began to wonder what was the rush in me because I, as an adult, would have struggled to uh, examine that many books and get a lot out of them. And so that really bothered me. And so um, I also um, began to be, you know, look for literature programs to my own children. And it was very confusing. How, why this book and not that book? And um, in 2000, maybe 14, I read a uh, history of children's literature by Seth Lair. And I got a new idea. It's like, wait a minute. You know, maybe we, we push these major adult classics on children. But maybe it's because we don't know what the major classics for children are. We know that there's classics and we love a lot of them. But there's so many. How do you know which is the best and why they're important? And so that his book sparked new idea in me. What are the children's great books? What are the ones that are most important to children? And so um, I kind of went on a new journey. I was so curious for my own sake. And I wanted to share that with, with other people, um, you know, to find out what were the most important, most influential books for children. So kind and of both of those things. And so this list that you uh, provide, as you explained, it's the first half of the book is, is, this, is this wonderful list, very thorough. Uh, it gives the age level, the maturity level, or rather reading level. And, uh, and then it's in chronological order, you know, beginning with uh, uh, ancient times, what, what kinds of stories were told children. And why do you think that's important to put this in chronological order? Well, children are children. It doesn't matter if you're born in ancient Greece or if you're born now. Uh, children are children. They've always wanted stories and love stories, want to be entertained. And I began to wonder what were important to children back then. They must have had stories too, even before there was a children's literature market. And so I wanted to show the whole scope of children's literature, what children had read from ancient times all the way up to, to, to uh, modern times. And I felt that to doing it chronologically and giving a general history of literature would help people see how literature developed and what was important in the lives of children, how each uh, book feed, uh, builds upon the other, which is just the same as the great books of Western adult literature do, uh, do too. And um, you know, all the ideas uh, build upon each other over time. And I wanted to see that in children's literature. Um, and it, I, I learned a lot. And one thing is that a lot of children's literature was actually adult literature for, for centuries, such as the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, these were embraced by children. Um, so I, I just wanted to hold, show the whole sc scope of that, just like we can get in the Western adult great books. And there's then a shared culture, right? That, that Western culture, uh, your book focuses on the works that have been great through time in Western culture, both contributing to it and being influenced by it. And for us to even understand ourselves, our own civilization, mm -hmm. it's kind of important to see uh, these works through time, isn't it? 
Yes, for sure. Um, and it's important to um, understand where we've been and who we are, and that doesn't come just through history. You know, we can study all the battles and dates that we want, but there's a human, you know, there's a human story that's being told and it's played out in literature. We can see how people lived, how they interacted, how they spoke, um, what their ideas were. Um, we can examine our vices and our virtues and our successes and our failures. We can look ourselves square in the eye when we study literature. And that goes for children's literature as well not just adult lit literature. It's all treasures of, of Western civilization. It's all art. Um, and I feel that that's important to examine, that children's literature is no less art than adult literature. Very good. Now, you use the word great, uh, the, great ca the canon of great books for adults, and you've uh, developed a canon of great books for, for children. And so what are the criteria you use for deciding what deserves to be in the canon? What deserves to be on the list of great works? Um, well, first of all, um, I, I made the list as objective as I could. It's very important to be objective and not just insert my own values, my own opinions, because I'm as opinionated as everyone else. And I didn't want myself to be in the list. So I tried to follow the re my research as best I could. Um, and I tried to just let history reveal itself to me in what was the most influential, most impactful literature in the lives of children uh, throughout history. So first of all, the, the list had to be as objective as I could make it. I did make judgment calls because I had to, but only when I had to. But um, I did try to parallel the Western adult great books by focusing on what was the most important and influential, influential, not just in the lives of children, but also in the development of literary history, the development of children's literature, um, you know, just because of the way new authors, they build upon the ideas of the old. For example, Robinson Crusoe was the first island story, and that set off a whole new uh, subgenre of island stories, you know, castaway stories. And so I wanted Including to... Including Gilligan's Island. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, it shows up in pop culture. You know, the, yeah. the books we have today don't come in a... They didn't arise from a vacuum. They, yeah. They're built on the ideas that came before them. And I... Mm -hmm read many uh, articles about how this author was influenced by that author and you know when they wrote their books they were inspired by by certain authors and so um and i you know i was i've been inspired by authors as well i was inspired by seth lair's history of children's literature so um mm -hmm. i think that's important to um to have as a you know as a uh, criteria to see how the whole scope, how it developed just the way the great books of adult literature did. So I tried to try to follow that, that scope and not what we think of as good or fun or um, appropriate, but what actually was important and influential throughout history. Now, um, you mentioned having to make uh, some value judgments and I'm sure a lot of parents will be glad that you did because when we get to 20th century literature, uh, especially and, and late 20th century as well, we start to see some, I don't know, maybe problematic elements uh, uh, as creeping into children's literature. Yes. And you do use this category or this label, parents cautioned in your book on, on certain titles. How would you like to explain a little bit about what your parents cautioned label means and how you hope parents will use that 
Well, uh, again, first of all, this is meant to be as objective a list as I can make it. And because many books, maybe most books, I'm not sure, were written by non-Christian or uh, maybe nominally Christian authors, then it's you know that their their books don't necessarily match Christian Catholic values, and because I am not here to recommend books. It's not that the list isn't meant to be a set of recommendations, but an objective list to help parents make informed decisions of their own for the books that are appropriate for their children. And so when I got to books that history uh, revealed to me, if you will, um, should belonged on the list uh, and that they were impactful and influential in the lives of children or in the development of children's literature, then um, I had, I, if I knew that had a, uh, some mature material in it, uh, such as, you know, a lot of violence or swearing, for example, um, you know, well, Robinson Crusoe in itself has some violence. Um, I don't think that was one of them as parents caution, but I happen to be reading it right now. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, you know, there are some mature materials in a lot of these books, and I want parents to be aware of that before they just hand them to their children. Oh, this must be all right because it's on the list. In some cases, some of the content's actually pretty problematic. Um, such as Catcher in the Rye has a lot of swearing. So I felt it was important to label the book so that parents could be on the alert, maybe look a little deeper at the book before they decide to read it with their children or hand it to their children. So, I think it's also helpful that, say your children is in school and is being assigned certain books and bringing them home. And, you know, a lot of parents, they don't have time to read everything their children are reading, right? But I think your book well, is a handy guide to, well, let's just see, does that have a parent's caution label and <laughs> find out why? And then uh, then, then just discerning, you know, uh, how are we going to handle this material in our home uh, if it's an assignment and so And now you've got the ability to um, talk and learn alongside your children about things going on in the culture and going to affect them whether they read these books or not, right? Yes, in some cases, I really, I don't say that the, that the student shouldn't read it or the child shouldn't read it. Maybe wait for a little bit till they're older. But if a parent feels that this is an important book, um, I suggest they read it with their student. And that's not hard to do because we're so busy. I mean, I would love to read a bunch of books with my son who I, I homeschool, but it's hard to find the time, isn't it? Uh, so, but when you can, if you can, some of these books are actually that are difficult or maybe don't match Catholic values are actually very profound and beautiful, important books, but they have some problematic content. This, um, you know, rather than just throw out the book, um, spend some time reading it with your student, if you possibly, or child, if you possibly can, because they're still worth examining and considering because of other traits that they have. So, Well, and back to your point, you know, these books kind of wouldn't be on the list uh, and, and withstanding the tests of time if they didn't have something important about them. Well, exactly. Yes. There's a reason that classics are classics. And I used right. to think like a lot of other people, like they're just boring, musty. They're, they don't mean anything. They're outdated. You know, they, they're not relevant. Well, they're classics because they're relevant. You know, right. they don't, they stand the test of time and they were once contemporary too. We have to remember that all Classics were once contemporary. They were criticized. They were banned. They were, you know, they were, uh, you know, 
they were, you know, ignored or, you know, they were popular or not popular, just like contemporary books. And someday, some of the books we got now that are being published today will be classics. So, right. <laughs> that's um, right. That's right. That. Um, the best children's books are really books that parents love as well, that adults love as well, right? I mean, <laughs> I think so. As you and as you point out, the early works on this list predate the children's book publishing business, right? Things like the Bible and the Iliad and right. mythology and even Aesop's fables, which you mentioned in your title. Mm -hmm. These were not published works. These were orally transmitted stories right. that were part of what everyone in the community listened to at the hearth or around the fire or around, you know, mm -hmm. after dinner or what have you. Um, these cultures preserve these stories uh, and pass them on to their children too. They didn't differentiate between children's literature right. and adult literature. Yep. This is our community's stories. Right, and, and children could relate to them because of, you know, they were just good stories, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they sure, maybe they didn't understand them at the same level, but they right. could still enjoy them. Right. And now there are, of course, because of the publishing industry, there's multiple children's adaptations of some of these things. Take the Odyssey, Iliad, right? There's, right. there's children. So because those are really violent and uh, there's all yeah. kinds of adult content <laughs> in those the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and not to mention all the schnishnishing uh, going on with goddesses and whatnot. So, I mean, uh, these are not children's stories, right? I mean, this, this category of children's stories is somewhat a new phenomenon as a result mm -hmm. of the publishing industry. Yeah. And I almost wonder if it's false in some way. I mean, sure, you know, Goodnight Moon is for children, for little, you know, toddlers, but I like Goodnight Moon. <laughs> I like I it. I do and too. I'm not going to go to the library and check out Goodnight Moon, but that's only because I've read it a hundred times, you know, because my own kids, it's still worth reading. <laughs> I mean, it's lovely. Tale of Peter Rabbit. I don't want to, you know, if I had never had Tale of Peter Rabbit in my childhood, I still think it's worth reading, even though I'm an adult now. Uh, art is art. You know, it doesn't matter who it's published for. Art is art. And that doesn't matter if it's adults or children or whatever. We can still enjoy art for what it for what it is. We just get to enjoy it on a higher level, maybe, if it was, you know, speaks more to children. And that's one of the unique things about your book is that uh, you dive into uh, these children's classics like Goodnight Moon and so on. And you explain that even older children, if they never read that, they should. They should before they graduate yeah. high school, even and and no. and, and <laughs> appreciate it. Study it, but they can certainly enjoy it and read it yeah. um, on a higher level than they would have if they were three. Um, you know, it's still a great great book. That's um, that's really that was really a unique thing about your book that caught my attention and others at Ignatius Press uh, that we thought made the book you know, really an interesting, worthwhile uh, project that, that you've, that you've, that you've accomplished. Um, now you've mentioned homeschooling and certainly this book has with, with its exhaustive lesson plans and, and, and helps like, like uh, rubrics and, and things for grading and whatever you could as a homeschooler, make an entire literature curriculum out of your book, right? 
If you like to uh, do more independent study and you wanted to study certain books that maybe weren't in a literature program that you wanted to use or, you know, you couldn't find it in a program, you know, you can do it yourself. Um, it's, you know, that doesn't mean that literature programs that are published, you know, with lesson plans aren't worthwhile. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that because sometimes a teacher and guided lessons are really helpful. <laughs> but if you want to study a book independently, uh, you can use the same principles that English teachers do. And so I've tried to lay those out clearly and succinctly so that you can make use of them in a way that's appropriate for you that, that meets your needs and your students' needs. Uh, for example, how to write a literary analysis essay, how to annotate a work of literature, um, you know, how to outline uh, effectively. And um, those are all principles that English teachers use to develop curriculum and um, you can do it too. <laughs> and they're, and by the way, they are study skills that if children learn these in, in, in literature, they cross over into other oh. fields of study, right? Oh, exactly, yes. Yeah. And um, because I use Mortimer Adler as my uh, spine uh, for developing the, the, uh, the scholarly part of the book, uh, you know, I let him influence me from his classic, How to Read a Book. And you know, he covers all different genres in his How to Read a Book. I didn't go that deep into uh, the different kind of the genres, but he has his basic principles apply to any kind of literature. That's um, right. Po poetry is a little special and different, but um, you can use these principles for for anything. That's right. Your whole life. It's good life skills. It's not just for academic literature class. <laughs> exactly. That was exactly what I was thinking as I was uh, working on the book that, wow, you know, if kids learn these study skills, uh, they, they apply to any other subject they yes. might want to learn. And I um, wish I had known some of them myself. <laughs> likewise. So then, but, but then the book is not limited by any means to homeschoolers or people who are going to uh, uh, do an independent study literature course because you also have lots of really great ideas for how to enjoy books at various levels right uh yes um i have uh, also a leisurely plan that you can follow and you know just reading for fun but what about keeping a record in a reading notebook or a book club uh kind of a book club approach you know grab a partner and you read together or maybe several partners and and have a party you know decorate your house with you know winnie the pooh theme if you're going to read winnie the pooh and have you know a little british tea treats you know do something fun make it come alive and discuss it you know um discuss the different ideas in the book discuss what happens and make it fun and then you can do the scholarly adventure and um you can do it at the elementary level or this or the um, secondary level and um there's all so many ways to enjoy books and so I yes just and i think offer i think uh i think you really do cover uh a, a, a very broadly the various ways you can approach the study or the appreciation of literature and at different age levels too. Uh, but really the first half of the book, this, this exhaustive list that you give, the chronological order, uh, the, 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 the reading level and all these things, I think that that's worth the price of the book myself. Thank uh, you. But, but for those who actually want to apply some of your suggestions for how to read, appreciate, study literature, there's all that too. It's really like a two for one. <laughs> yeah, and originally I wasn't even gonna include the second half. That, that came after I was finished with the annotated list. And I thought, you know, this just doesn't feel like enough. How do, how do, how, 
how to help parents help their children get the most out of these books. And I'd always, I'd long wanted to do, for years I've wanted to write a book on Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book and make it accessible to the homeschool uh, world because it's such a difficult book to just sit down and read. I, I struggled reading it. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a hard book to read. It's college level. And so I long wanted to turn that into a guide, an accessible guide for parents. And so I, you know, added my own ideas, of course, to help unpack each level that he discusses in his book. But it is kind of like two for one. <laughs> but it, uh, this it is. So let's go back for a minute, because I'm sure parents are, are eager about this topic. You know, some Catholics uh, are very, uh, you know, they're, they're very protective about what their children should be reading, what their children should be exposed to. Uh, they want book lists that basically spell out what they should and shouldn't be reading. Yeah. And that's not really what your book is doing, is it? No, and I did that deliberately. I don't feel it's my place to insert my opinions because my opinions may not line up with your opinions, even though we're both Catholics. That doesn't mean that we're going to always agree on what's appropriate. Some, you know, let's use Harry Potter for an example. That's opening a can of worms because one, some people, some Catholics believe that's that's a good book to give their children or a good series, and other Catholics believe it's wrong. And so I can't insert myself into each book and say this is good for you and this is not. And um, and I feel like it's important to be objective so that parents can follow their own consciences and and make their own informed decisions. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, you just, you know, just because it's in a book, you know, just don't hand it to your kid, but also read the summaries to make sure that it doesn't have, you know, uh, it's not about something that maybe your child isn't ready for. For example, the house on mango street um, was one of the first Chicano literature uh, books. And, Maybe your student isn't ready for something like that that might be in a couple of years. Um, so make sure you're reading about the book, too. Um, but it's for you to make the decisions um, according to what you think is best for your child. And every child is different, as you just alluded to, right? I mean, one right. child might be ready for certain kinds of content and another child at the same age is not. And 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 really, the person who knows the child best is the parent, Right, right. Yep, I'm a strong, strong believer that the parent is a primary edu educator um, in whether you're homeschooling or not. And I, you know, I know from my own five children that I have led a lot of what they have uh, enjoyed in media and uh, the arts slip away from me. And, um, you know, they're pretty good kids, but every once in a while I'm like, oh my goodness, I should, <laughs> I should have been more, uh, more present and looked into what they were doing and been more, uh, you know, guided them a little better. Uh, so it's easy to let it slip away. So definitely, definitely look more into the books, but hopefully my book will help you get a start and get a sense of whether this book is worth your time, whether it's worth your child's time, whether they're ready for it, um, you know, reading level wise, interest level wise, and also the themes. So I do talk about some of the themes in, in each book, just mm -hmm. to give you a sense of whether um, it's something that maybe you want to pursue. Um, and it could also help your teens uh, make informed choices on their own when you feel that they're ready. Right. Don't don't you agree that um, by by uh, being kind of transparent about this process of discernment uh, that and and helping your children, you're actually not only teaching them about literature, 
you're actually teaching them how to discern and make judgments about what they themselves are going to spend their time doing. And not just about books either, right? Right, right. To me, when, when I was working at Barnes & Noble, I felt like I was in a microcosm of the whole world. You know, I worked there for five years and I loved the sense that I had the whole world around me, you know, in every genre and every book. And I had such a sense that this is this is the world and I would I'd shelve all these books and some of them were awful. They're about witchcraft and Satanism. Other books were about Winnie the Pooh or, you know, you had everything. And um, I would I found myself needing to discern because of all the books that came my way and all the ones that interested me. And sometimes I have to put it back. I'm like, this isn't for me. You know, this isn't right for me. I know that this isn't good for me to read. Um, and I learn the hard way sometimes, to be honest. But um, I think that is a really important life skill to be able to learn to discern and know our Catholic faith so that we can make those um, decisions. And we do read something that isn't maybe healthy, then to have the strength to put it down or to at least take it to someone to discuss it. You know, I don't understand this. Why did this happen in this book? You know, what, why this, you know, why is it so horrible? You know, help me understand this, this war, mom, you know, this is so horrible. What happened in this war? Help me understand what happened to Anne Frank. You know, why did this happen to Anne Frank? You know, that's one of the books in my, on my list. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that is really important. Um, And and even if it is something that uh, you find you're objecting to, isn't it important to know why you're objecting to it? And and don't Mm -hmm. children have to learn over time how to to be able to understand why are some things better than others? Why are some things evil? Mm -hmm. Uh, And isn't part of the process of learning that ability to make these kinds of evaluations don't doesn't a lot of that come from reading literature? Yes, I think that's one reason why literature is so important. Um, and, and there was a time when I was like, why do we bother with literature? What's the what's the point? And, it, you know, it took me some time of thinking about that um, to realize that, you know, literature, it, it gives us a, a window into life and into lives that we're not going to live, but it, but it gives us windows so we can understand humanity better. And so we can examine ourselves as human beings and um, look at different things that have happened throughout history for reading historical novels. Um, and I just think it can give us so much insight to read literature. You know, we see the common core of, uh, you know, the common core curriculum that has that has been put into our schools and it is emphasizes nonfiction and mm-hmm. literature is being taken out or else uh, contemporary literature that is um, you know maybe adult I, I I remember one time at Barnes and Noble I sold an entire class set of some dime store thriller that an English teacher was going to give to her students to read in class I'm like I didn't say anything because I was selling selling them, but I was just horrified because, you know, why? There's so much else to read. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, it's just... It's just uh, so so important to read literature and not just nonfiction, but to examine the classics and, and just great books so that we can understand ourselves better as human beings. Right. People are often surprised uh, when when you say, just because it's fiction doesn't mean it's not true. That's right. And right, and that took me a while to understand as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, well, you know, there was a time when Christians felt, a lot of Christians felt it was wrong to read fiction because it wasn't true. And I thought, you know, I thought there was a time I thought, you know, maybe they're right. And I thought, wait a minute. 
You know, there is truth in it. It's just that, in fact, there are truths about humanity and about our world that can come through more eloquently, more clearly than they can in nonfiction. Nonfiction is important. It's, it's, I mean, there's some beautiful, wonderful nonfiction out there. But when it comes to fiction, we can examine uh, ourselves in a different light, in a different way that we cannot in nonfiction. That's right. And it gives us the opportunity to reflect on our lives vicariously experiencing other people's experiences, which is what we do when we read a novel. Right. It helps us to reflect on our own lives. Right. And, and, and art can do this in ways that, that a lot of other things just can't. Mm-hmm. So and I think that's I, true I, for all the arts, not just literature. That's true for all the arts. That's right. So this is why the, the, it's in the category of the humanities, right? That's right. These are the things that we study in order to understand what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's why what you've done in this book is a great service uh, to parents to be able to give us this list, to give us these explanations and summaries, um, then to show us how to read and write about what we read and it's really just a great resource, and we thank you for bringing it to Ignatius Press. Well, I'm really glad I could. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs> um, yeah, and I hope that literature will make a comeback in, in schools and in education because it's kind of falling falling away. I've, I've seen it happen in, you know, just this past year. I've watched it happen, and uh, I pray that we make a turnaround so that our children, you know, the upcoming children can continue to uh, to read great literature themselves. And just to give a shout out, Sherry is uh, also the author of an upcoming book from Ignatius Press, uh, a vision book, a a contribution to the vision book series on the life of Maria von Trapp, a sort of novelized version of her story. Fascinating story. They had a fascinating story. And so excited excited to share it with, with, uh, with people. And so are we. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.